Ephesians 1.15 For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Thank you, Britt. Did you guys notice that we have yet another lengthy passage on our hands? Um, 1 through 14 was, if you guys don't know, that's one sentence in the Greek, verses 1 through 14, or actually verses 3 through 14. That is one sentence, 202 words. Try to get away with that in your grammar schools. Um, and tonight, what we have is Paul, okay, so in verse 14, he basically puts a period, and then guess what he does in verse 15, that we just read. He starts another massive sentence. This one's 167 words long. So, from one long sentence to another really long sentence, chapter 1 in the Greek is two sentences. That's... Okay, and this is what I want you guys to understand. The, the, the theological depth and poetic beauty of these verses is not like Paul was sitting there Microsoft Word typing and then go, no, this would sound better. Backspace, backspace, comma, semicolon, comma, 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 semicolon, dash, semicolon, dash, comma, you know, run on, run on, run on. And making this beautiful sentence through editing, he was dictating these massive sentences to a scribe. Do you know how hard that is to dictate this language? And one run-on straight, like the scribe can't just say, oh, messed up, new parchment. It was very expensive. <laughs> this, is, this means Paul had this story so soaked into himself that he can just talk it. And this beauty comes out. And it's my prayer that we would, as this prayer of his says here in 15 to the end of the chapter, that our hearts would be enlightened, that the wisdom and knowledge of God's revelation would be given to us, that we can be like Paul and just be so enamored with the story of God's good news that we could blub about it. Run on sentences and all. So, alright, let's pray, guys. God, we know that you have people who are in need of help. Your saints... Father, your saints are struggling. Some of us don't know who we are in you. We don't know what it is that you've given to us. And because of that, we suffer. But God, I pray you open hearts, open the eyes of our hearts to see, to comprehend, and to know with all certainty the great power with which dwells in us. That we are not left helpless 
Lord, we've been given the very resurrection power of your Son. And that we would become a community that thrives with that fuel, with that power, thrusting us into this world of death. So, Father, we plea for those who are struggling and for ourselves, make us to know our true identity in your Son's resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so you guys might notice. That my voice is shoddish, right? If you don't know, I don't normally talk like this. Um, so I'm going to have to step closer than you're used to and speak softly, carry a big stick. <laughs> or a big mug of tea would be cool too. Okay, so how many of you guys are like me and you read like Brittany just read to us and... Like, you're following it with Paul. He's like, I'm praying for you. Cool. What's he praying for us? And then somewhere in this massive 167-word sentence, you totally lost what you said. Anybody like that? That's Ephesians, like, Ephesians just being Ephesians. I mean, Ephesians is some of the most lofty language in the Bible. So if you ever feel like that, don't think you're the dumb one. Just think that Paul's a smart one. <laughs> and that we all are striving to be like, Paul, help us. And so JC and I are going to try our best to bring Paul's loftiness down to our stupidity level. <laughs> so that we can then be enlightened, like he says here. So what I want to tell you is what he's basically doing. As Paul, after this huge old story, verses 3 through 14, he just told us the story of salvation and our identity in Christ. And remember, with the blessings of Abraham, the beginning of creation, the redemption from slavery in Egypt, and then the inheritance of heaven and our promised land and the Holy Spirit guiding us there, and everything JC and I talked about. The story is our identity. We are found in Christ, he says over and over, in Christ, in Christ. So much so that the stories of the Old Testament is you and I being reenacted right now in Christ. That we were once slaves, were set free, were being sent off into an inheritance that we were chosen for. And that through all that, God's trying to reunite heaven and earth together, verse 10 said, and everything will be happy. That's a long story, he said. And it was so incredible that Paul had to stop now and said, okay, for this reason, verse 15, I'm going to pray for you. Because <laughs> I can sense the overwhelmedness of your ears as you hear your pastor read this to you. So he prays for them. And what is he praying? He says in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That's helpful. Revelation and knowledge and wisdom. So in other words, that we get what he's saying. And then in verse 18, what this, another way of saying that is having the eyes of your heart enlightened. That's the picture of there's darkness and confusion and not understanding. And then light comes and I can't yell. So, and bam, um, <laughs> there's light and understanding. So it was really hard for me to hold that in. Um, I just wanted to bam. Okay. Um, and then what, it, what does he want us to get? What does he want us to know? There's three basic things here. And he says, number one in verse 18. So have the eyes of your heart enlightened. That you may know, so here's number one, know what is the hope to which you're called. Number two, 
what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in us, the saints? And number three is verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? So I want you to know the hope, the inheritance, and the power. And then verses 20 to the end of the chapter is basically telling you how great that power is. So, that's where we're going. Now, my, what I want to tell you right now up front is, the whole idea of this prayer, why is Paul doing this? Yeah, so we have understanding, but why else? I think it's because he wants you to understand that you have a spiritual identity. That wasn't a joke, but I think JC's laughing because he knows where this is going. Um, JC teaches a Bible class at the Christian school here. And what do you call your class? Bythegetics. Bythegetics. <laughs> because it's theology, apologetics, and <coughs> Bible. So by the Bible, theology, jetics, apologetics, bythegetics. <laughs> well, a spiritual identity, I'm sorry, that wasn't it, a spiritual identity is to say that your identity that we've been talking about is not just spiritual. It's also social. And the reason for me mentioning that is because I think we often have this um, fallacy to hear messages from the Bible, to hear about, oh, my identity in Christ, and to think, well, that's cool. That's my spiritual identity. And this is who I am in Christ, but who am I in the world? And we create this unnatural dichotomy, this division in idea, in our identity. And we say, okay, so I come to church to find out my spiritual identity, but I'm still trying to figure out my social identity. And I think what Paul does is he tells this big old massive identity story, and now he says, okay, let me piece it together. I'm going to pray that the eyes of your heart are enlightened to see that this identity isn't just some like mystical, celestial, detached from real reality type of identity, like it's nice to think about, but actually this identity in Christ is not just spiritual, but social. It, it, it's not just a part of who you are, but it, it invades and permeates all of who you are. So that our spiritual understanding should bleed into our social context. And Paul's saying, okay, this is why you need wisdom and revelation. Because we need to get God out of some upstairs story in our head and let him step down into the downstairs main floor where real life interacts. The separation I'm talking about happened not too long ago. You know there was a time when people never thought of dividing a time of worship from real life? (laughs) There was a time when the Christians could talk about worship as being united in all of life. Um, We had a great talk in the car on the way from Arizona about that kind of stuff. That communion is not just a time with grape juice and a shot glass and a little cracker, but that communion was meant to permeate all of us. That there's always communion with the Father. And every now and then we celebrate it with those symbols to remember what they stand for. And, and we just live in this society, in a world really, that has done this. It's split. This is secularism. This is spiritualism. This is the world. This is God. This is science. This is faith. And they just split it all down the middle and make you take sides. When did that happen? Very recently. It's called... The Enlightenment. 
that period in the 17th and 18th century when Europe started to and it spread to America, they erupted into the sense of we're out of the dark ages. We see the light. What light did they see? The light that they saw was we are empowered. They saw themselves as empowered because they suddenly realized we're enlightened. We don't need God. We can figure out this science stuff on our own. We don't need the church. We can figure out how to do business and life on our own. And through this enlightenment period, thinkers began to say things in ways that split the world into two halves. The social and the spiritual half. And the church, which once was the center of many governments in Europe, was shoved from the center to the side. The church became marginal. And God became not present amongst us and king, but the guy upstairs who can rule over your life when you're at church. So the church was marginalized. God was deicized. Um, I, don't, I might have made that up, but it's deism when God is no longer over us, but he's, he's just, he's upstairs and you only have to answer to him when you're living in that other spiritual compartment. But in real life, it's all about man's enlightenment, our self empowered ability to find out who we are and why we're on this earth. So God is put upstairs and can rather conveniently, he continue to drift in men's minds until you have what we have today, a vague conception of God, because the further he gets launched into some other realm, the less specific he is. And now we have this whole, every road goes to God. God is whatever you make of him. and It's all the Enlightenment's fault. So that's, again, the 17th and 18th century. And so everything became separated. And this is the tension that we feel now. Okay, It was no longer... Science and religion working harmoniously, but it became science or religion. It became history or theology. They don't work together. Theology is not historically rooted. It's just some idea the church came up with. So separate them. Make your choice. You're either a historian or a theologian. Um, You can either have facts or you can have faith. See what they're doing? They're implying that faith isn't fact-based. It's all your preferences and beliefs. So it's one or the other. You can't have them together. And also the secular and the sacred. And this is a tension you guys feel often with music. You have sacred music. We call it Christian music. And you have secular music, as if it's all from the devil. This dichotomy is not natural. Creation is God's. But we've set up parameters and divisions because the Enlightenment taught us to think this way. And I think what Paul wants us to do is say, no more. The Enlightenment is not that man-made thing where they decided, okay, it's man versus God. It's all these divisions. The true Enlightenment is what Jesus did when he rose from the dead. And that's the enlightenment that I want the saints to know, he says. I want the saints, of course he was before the enlightenment, but I'm saying if Paul was, you guys know what I'm saying, right? If he was on this side of the epistle, this is how he would tell us. 
Um, saying, I want you guys to know that your identity doesn't have to be spiritual and social. Like, I'm going to find one here and one here. They're meant to be married. Remember 110, the reunification of heaven and earth? That's what's happening in our identity. Some of you remember the little high-definition graphics I brought in on my flat screen? Little paper. Um, there's the purple sphere in Eden. Because there's two spheres, there's red and blue. And when we rebelled against God, heaven and earth were separated. A man's been thinking this way a lot. But in Jesus and our redemption, they're starting to come back together. And we live in the little part where they're touching, the, the purple zone. That's where we are. We're, we're finding that reunification, that harmony. And that's what Paul wants us to understand. Your identity is not split. It's harmoniously working spiritually and socially. So that's a what? A spiritual, spiritual, social, a spiritual identity. So this is the enlightenment Paul says. See that in verse 18. I want the eyes of your hearts enlightened. This is the true enlightenment. It's what Jesus did when he walked out of the tomb. It was the darkest moment on earth's history. In fact, Matthew is very keen to point out that when Jesus died and said his last breath, there was darkness over the face of the land. And he was buried. And Israel's Messiah was dead. And the hopes of being restored to God's kingdom was over. Well, it wasn't like that forever. Because as we talked about, some of you guys might remember in John 20, the resurrection was the dawn of a new age, a new creation. As Jesus came out, all four Gospels mentioned that it was in the early morning, in the dawn of the day. Why do they all mention that? Was it in the dawn? Yeah, probably. But all, none of them missed the symbolic fact that he rose in the morning because this was the new day. As the Enlightenment thought that they reached the new day. Humanity's Enlightenment in the 6th, 17th, and 18th century. It was, all the dark ages gone, the present age is over, the age to come, the golden glorious when man finds out who he is. He's free from God. (laughs) And he's on his own now. That's what they did. They they thought they'd reached the Enlightenment. But we haven't. It was in Jesus' resurrection, and it's beginning to dawn. Um, it's like it started, and the new creation is growing. And it's getting brighter as the church grows, and it spreads throughout the world. And there's going to come the zenith when the sun's in its full light, and Jesus returns and brings the new creation and the new order to us. That's, that, that is true enlightenment. And Paul wants us to understand what happened in Christ. So, the three things he wants us to know, remember, we went over them real briefly, is number one, the hope to which he called you in verse 18. So, this is the enlightenment. The hope to which he called you. The hope, you guys look at, um, you see that at the very end of verse 21? It says, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul there mentions that there's two ages. What's an age? It's just a long amount of time. (laughs) There's two ages. There's the present one. We're all living in it. It's a present age of death. And then there's the one to come in which Christ is bringing his kingdom and the new creation. That's the age to come. That's what they're hoping for. I always think, I tell my students at the school, think of Narnia, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, right? 
Remember how the, the wicked witch was ruling as a hundred year winter? That's like the present age. But when Aslan returned, everybody knew he was there, that he had come because the snow began to melt and spring began to blossom. And that's the age to come. That's the age of life. And when Jesus returns, that's the idea, okay? So just a little picture for you. The age to come is to come. <laughs> the Enlightenment was claiming, we arrived! But Paul's saying, look, I want you to know the hope of the calling you have. Because if this is the age to come, ho hum, that was dumb. I'm disappointed. I don't know about you, but I still see people dying and separations and divorces and death everywhere. This is not the age to come. And Paul wants us to know that in Jesus' enlightenment, it's getting brighter and brighter to the full day when his age to come indeed comes. Number two, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Um, Now, we talked about the inheritance JC did um, in verses 11 to 14. That's our inheritance. We're going to gain heaven. And he's given us the Holy Spirit right now as evidence that heaven's going to come. But guess what? This verse isn't talking about our inheritance. It's talking about God's inheritance. And it says that his inheritance is us, the saints. This is cool. What does that mean? Does that mean that God wins a bunch of losers like us? Sure. But actually what that means is we're not a bunch of losers like us. We're treasured by him. We don't have to sulk in an identity of, I'm such a weak, lousy sinner. I'm so worthless. That's not your identity. It's that God values you to the point that you are his inheritance. It's his creation and his people are the one thing that are going to move on into the age to come. And there will be a new creation, sure, and new bodies for sure. But we are the cho- we're the gathered ones that he treasures for himself. It's like Revelation 21 said, we, when we finished history, I think that was, yeah, that was the last thing we looked at. It says that now... The dwelling place of God is amongst men. Okay, our inheritance is a land. It's the new creation, the new heaven and earth. His inheritance is us. In other words, we are like his land. He is going to dwell with us. That's his inheritance. And that is good news for us and him. That verse 10, 110 will definitely come true. Heaven will reunite with earth and all will be restored to harmony. So that's part of what he wants us to know. And then third, the power, verse 19. I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness. Paul is just hyperbolic in Ephesians. You'll see that in chapter 3. The, yeah, anyways. Paul is, what am I, wait, oh, the the immeasurable greatness of his power to us. What kind of power is this? That's where verse 20 through 23 come in. So let me show you what kind of power this is. Verse 20 says, The power that God worked in Jesus when God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. In other words, when God brought Jesus back to life from the dead, out of the grave, and rose him up to his throne, 
to rule with him, to be king over the earth, that is the power we're talking about. Verse 21. He was seated on a throne that's so high, this is what he says, that it's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. In other words, there's no end to his reign, even in the new age. This reign is going, nothing will stop it, not even time, not even the end of the world. And he put all things under his feet. You know what the picture there is? You guys know when you recline on the lazy boy and you put your feet up? Think of a king doing that. It's underneath his feet. Like the lowest part of his rulership. Everything. It's like God stretching, Jesus is on the throne of God and he's stretching out and his feet are resting on the earth. Saying, it's just a mere footstool, I'm so in charge. things under his feet and gave him his head above all things or gave him his head over the church so there you have it (coughs) that's the power he's talking about it's resurrection power now what's the big deal about resurrection power well resurrection is not it's not merely coming back to life after being dead. That's called coming back to life after being dead. <laughs> I, don't even know, I don't even know if there's a word for that. I think it's called resuscitation. Resurrection is different. Resurrection is, okay, you come back to life after being dead. That's only step one. And that's a pretty good step. Step two is, and then you are transformed into something entirely new, something that is built of the new creation itself. The age to come had come when Jesus rose from the dead, not here on earth, but in his body was the age to come. He rose as the new creation. In other words, he, came, he went in the tomb as a mess. He came out of the tomb, not just alive and but renewed and restored that's what resurrection means he was a new kind of life it's not just an improvement like okay he went in all bloody came out early healed and alive that would be an improvement he was transformed there was something like caterpillar to butterfly that happened he came out completely different the body made for heaven and earth co-inhabiting just for short, you guys know some of the story, but you know, walking through walls, surprise, I'm here when he wasn't there. Like, everyone's like, what? <laughs> and able to apparently go from, the, from earth to heaven in a heartbeat and just move places and suddenly be at the throne of God. And <coughs> that's the resurrection. It's transformation. Here's how C.S. Lewis put it. There's two kind of lives in the Bible. There's bios life. Like for biology, right? Bios life. And then there's Zoe life. You know what Zoe means? It means eternal life. Bios life is what the Enlightenment praised. It was the Bios life that we were finally figuring out. We're learning the human body and our medicines are advancing and our literature and our wisdom is growing and our sciences are amazing and we don't even need God anymore because we got this bios thing figured out. Cool. I mean, we, we're reaping some of the benefits from that, I would say. The bios life has improved. It's on an upward 
scale. Death hasn't fi- been fixed, apparently, but it's better, you know? Yeah, we mastered the bios life. But the enlightenment of Jesus, the one that Paul's calling us to come to this enlightenment, is not just improvement, it's transformation. It's resurrection power. Like Lewis put it, you can teach a horse to jump higher and higher and higher. A horse will keep improving, and maybe you can even teach it to jump over a building, not likely. But you can improve a horse's jump. Or you can just give the horse stinking wings and let it take off. That's the difference between bios improvement and zoe, which is resurrection. So what resurrection does is it takes, it doesn't discard the bios and say, oh, this is a spiritual thing now. So the social and the whole physical and it doesn't matter. Zoe, whatever that is, zoe. It's that he takes the bios and he transforms it to the zoe. There's a resurrection that's happening. And the Zoe is the life of God himself, is how the Bible describes it. That is, in my mind, true enlightenment when mankind finds the true power that he thinks he's enlightened with. It wasn't knowledge that Paul's saying, merely, just knowledge is your enlightenment. It's resurrection power within you. In this dead world, something's transformed within you. And if we don't have this resurrection power, this transformation, this Zoe life, we're just stuck in the bios and we're stuck thinking that we're so enlightened in man's enlightenment that we're actually not doing anything at all. But conforming to what everybody else is saying we should be like. How C.S. Lewis put it again. I just, Lewis was brilliant on this, so I just kept keep quoting him. Um, Lewis said this. I put it on Facebook so you might have seen it. He says, it is no good trying to be myself without Jesus. The more I resist him and try to live my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality... That I first began to have a real personality of my own. Because of just what he's saying. It's when I'm giving myself to Christ's identity, changing his words around a little bit, that I'm beginning to find an identity. When I resist his identity, what I'm actually only becoming is a conformation to the bios around me. Whether it's my hereditary, my desires, my influences, what I'm told to be like, whatever. Only Zoe life can pull me out of that hereditary and that, that confirmation and transformation me. Transform me into resurrection and a new true identity. So, in other words, apart from God's Zoe life, which is God's resurrection power, we have no meaningful identity. And I would say, guys, recognize where you see in your education and stuff, where the enlightenment influence is in the world and recognize that Jesus brought a different enlightenment. In fact, the whole enlightenment of the 17th and 18th centuries was actually just 1,700 years late. According to Paul, the (coughs) the enlightenment started with Jesus. And Paul wants us to realize that. So it's his prayer that we see it and that we get it. So... Okay, 
this is what I want to finish with, is that I think the summation of what all this means, if we enter into the enlightenment of Jesus, is that we have an important identity. It's not marginal. It's not shoved upstairs and out of the main populace's sight. Now, I say this because the Enlightenment started making us think, well, yeah, that's Siri, whatever. Um, <laughs> the Enlightenment started by shoving us off to the side, making us feel marginal and insignificant. That church has never amounted, it's been here for 1,700 years and nothing good's come out of it, so why do we really need it? Now, we don't want to get rid of God because we can't really make people stop believing in Him. So, what we're going to do is just make God really distant, make His church on the fringes, and if you want to be part of that whole weird society, go ahead. But we're going to move on in our progress, in our progress, um, improvement. And ever since, we've been buying into that, that the church is marginal, it's on the side, it's insignificant, it's not important. And the media feeds into this. When's the only time you hear about Christianity and the church in the media? Maybe even if Santa ever gets overtaken. No. <laughs> it's when another pastor molested a kid or something. Right? The idea is that they want you to keep thinking that it's irrelevant. It's such an old-fashioned thing. It's marginalized. We've moved on. The enlightenment's happened already, for heaven's sake. Wait, we don't believe in heaven. For man's sake. <laughs> um, I was being them. I believe in heaven. You get the yeah, okay. So, but here, okay, guys, let's be real here. How much more? Okay, yeah, the church is made of broken people. We're in the present age. We're in a realm of death, struggling to understand the resurrection power within us. And yeah, you've got pastors that do dumb things. They may not be really in God's community. They might just be fakers, you know. And you got other dumb things happening. You got churches blowing up abortion clinics or whatever, and you know. Okay, like there's some of that stupid stuff, but there is so much more good going on. There are lives being transformed, there are communities being resurrected. The news doesn't cover that. Because that's not exciting. That's not what people want to hear. They want to hear the church's marginal. I, I mean, is it insignificant that the church has out-survived any kingdom on this planet? With all the military might of, and military might, yeah, I said that, and the power of gold that kings have possessed and try to protect their kingdom with, with raw power, that the church has just quietly surpassed all of those kingdoms, never once has stopped and had to start over, just is kept going. Is it insignificant that there have been tyrants and people with earthly power who have hated the church and tried to stop it and stamp it out, that have killed its members, every single one they can find, taken all of its leaders and said, don't follow them because they're dead. You have no leadership anymore. And yeah, it just keeps going, keeps growing, keeps spreading. Is that insignificant or significant? I can't compare it to anything else in history. Jesus is, according to verses 20 to 23, resurrected and exalted as king over the earth. His feet are, it says, everything's under his feet. By the way, if you're like one of those scholar people, you know that that comes from Psalm 8. Everything under your feet. The creation psalm says man is to rule over the earth. That's what he's quoting. Jesus is the true Adam who's ruling over the earth. Everything's under his feet. It's in his control. 
And that control that he has over the universe, it says that that control is given as head over the church. So what Paul is saying is that the church isn't marginal, it's central. Because the king of the universe is the head of the church. If the king is the head of anything, you can't say it's marginal and insignificant. People got to know what the king is up to if he's the head of this. And so I like how the message puts this very bluntly. I'm going to read it to you. The message says, Jesus is in charge of it all, has a final word on everything. At the center of all this in chargeness, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. Rather, the world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. So, is the church really central? Is this like the deal? Are we the people of the universe that God has called? Because it doesn't feel like it, right? Don't you sometimes feel like we're marginal and insignificant? But Paul's saying, I want you to be enlightened. It's like, be re-enlightened. And realize that Christ is calling this as the center. And yeah, it doesn't look like it now. But in the age to come, this is what it will be. This is who you will see. This is who will be around. And it's, it's, it's like what Jesus said. I think this parable just puts it beautifully In Matthew 13, he said this. The kingdom of heaven, that's us, we're part of that. We're not the kingdom, but we're part of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. And Matthew helps us to know that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. So that's really tiny. That's us, it's the church. This massive field. Where'd it go? (laughs) so he says it's the smallest of all seeds Jesus continues but when it has grown it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree of life I added that so that so big a tree that it says so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches That's central. Now, we're just somewhere in the midst of this tiny little seed in this tree. And that's why we might feel insignificant. Because Jesus is saying, yeah, there's going to be times when you feel like the little mustard seed. But just wait till the age to come. You'll know your real identity and your resurrection power. And I'm going to just, you'll be the tree and everything is going to be centered on the church. Be a tree of life for the new creation. So... That's the enlightenment Paul's calling us to. So, tree of life, know that <coughs> we have a significant, important identity. We may not have the world's power, being gold and armies and popularity and persuasion, <laughs> but we have resurrection power. And there's no reason we should look upon ourselves as weak and let the media tell us who we are. And let people at schools and workplaces tell us who we are. Because then we're going to cower on the fringes of society and think we can't do anything. Paul is saying, listen to the enlightenment of Jesus. His resurrection power is in you. Your bios life is not just mere bios life. It's Zoe life. 
the voice is with you. No, 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 I'm just kidding. Um, no, I did not say that. <laughs> so, whether this be your, your, your own struggles in your life, and you think that my identity is my failure, Paul's saying, you don't know what kind of power exists. It's time to let it go. Be enlightened. Let the eyes of your heart see it. Or whether it's your struggle to bring resurrection power to this dead world. This is what Paul saying. We all carry this. As we go into our communities and cultures, there will be resurrection in our trail, in our path. We're not heaping destruction as we go. We're planting seeds in life. And the mustard seeds are slowly growing. That's what we're carrying within us as we go. So don't underestimate the power of the church Let's just do our thing. Let's just live our identity and let God do the work. And stop thinking that we're just, you know, ah, we're marginal. I just come because this is my Christian day at night, and then I'm back to rim and stuff or whatever. We are a spiritual identity because resurrection transcends all boundaries. So I'll leave you with this. Tree of life, I want to pray what Paul prayed. So let's pray it, and we'll go home. I pray, Father... The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that you may give to tree of life a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. Father, that you would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, that we may know the riches of of your glorious inheritance that you possess in us and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe Father let us know that power and let us carry resurrection life wherever we go we pray in your son's name Amen